So Dr. Fauci is suggesting that we cancel Thanksgiving gatherings. I'm not sure how that's going to happen. We're going to have some content on that coming up today. We expect that the governor will talk about it on his briefing. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Wernowski and Laura Johnston. Good morning, all. Good morning. What do you think? Do you think there's any chance people will cancel their Thanksgivings? No. (laughs) I don't think I can get that done in my own family. I just, I think people are going to get together. Yeah. We talked about this before we started recording, but you know, if you see how many people are getting together for Browns games, they sure as hell are not canceling their Thanksgiving plans. Well, Laura's plan is to have everybody get tested before, which, which would put in an element of safety. I wish we could get those credit card sized 15 minute tests, but I guess there aren't enough of them to go around. Anyway, I I think the need for people to see each other is going to overcome the risks they feel of getting it, which means the surge we're seeing will only get worse because by Thanksgiving, it'll be colder outside. We'll all be indoors. Let's begin. What's the new record for coronavirus cases in a single day in Ohio? And what do health officials say it means? Chris Warnowski, this was eye-popping. I mean, we thought we set the eye-popping record last week, but we crossed a major threshold. What's going on here? Yeah, Laura can confirm this, but I, I actually sent her a note asking, holy crap, isn't this, this is the first time <laughs> we're above 2,000? And she was like, yeah. And so... And not um, just, I mean, this was 200 more. This is Laura Johnston. Yeah, it was 200 more than the record we set last Friday. I mean. Yeah, so we're we're up to 2003, uh, 2,039 cases on Wednesday uh, from the previous day's report. The closest that we've hit to that number before was Friday, which was 1,840 newly reported cases. Unlike the summer when the case levels were spiking, but hospitalizations were dipping this fall is showing hospitalizations are also rising at the same time as cases. So that's a bad sign. And that's something that is happening nationwide. You know, if, if you look at the whole country, we're basically barreling toward a third peak in this. That's probably only going to get worse as people start to stay home and as the weather gets colder. So um, what's uncanny here is the way the predictions are coming true. I mean, it's not even that cold yet in the Northern Hemisphere, but in Europe, in America, as the temperatures have cooled, we're going through the exact same experience they went through in 1918. It's surging and everybody who predicted it is turning out to be uncannily accurate. Yeah. I mean, and here here it was supposed to be gone by April, but. <laughs> but <laughs> and he's but, still out telling people, get back to your life. I mean, everybody else is looking at this surge going, whoa. And here's the president going, yeah, 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 it's fine. T- trust me. I went through it. Just get back to your life. Three weeks, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> Less. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's yeah. So you're start, you're starting to see like some places in Europe, I think Germany is, is starting to to consider or enforce lockdowns again. I think in London, I, I'm starting, I saw that there are some restrictions that are going into place. So, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the reason is for it in our state specifically. It's probably going to be the same reason as every other state across the country, which is people aren't wearing masks. People aren't distancing. People are, people are getting comfortable sitting around people without masks on and when really they should still be being vigilant and adhering to the things that we've been doing since March. How, how do you do that though? How, I mean, that is the crux. I mean, the governor has said it in briefing after briefing that people are weary and they've stopped wearing masks. How do you change that? Because that is the key. If everybody wore a mask, the science is clear. It stops it dead in its tracks. But 
there's so many people that refuse to do so. It's like, it's like we're lemmings going off the cliff, man. I don't get it. Well, and I think that you know, the governor talks about this in every briefing where he says this is family spread. This is through gatherings. This is funerals and weddings. I mean, last week he talked about the grand two grandfathers who died after a wedding, which is just I, I don't know how you live with yourself after that. But I went back and read a story Julie Washington wrote in July about when we started seeing about spread at like backyard barbecues and people just we are psychologically imprinted not to cover our faces around our loved ones. And so I think people feel like they have to let their guard down somewhere and they're doing it around family, but you can't know that your family is safe. I mean, there's just no way to know unless you're getting tested. Yeah. And, and I mean, you guys have been around family through all this. I mean, it's, it's difficult. You want to hug your loved ones. You want to, you know, if you're, although we wear masks, I mean, when I'm with my mom or my brother, we wear masks with my grandson, we don't, but there's a lot more testing going on there that gives us some safety. But look, let's face it. Thanksgiving, you're not going to get, you know, 10, 15 people, family members in your house and everybody's going to wear a mask. It's not going to happen. So what, what, what'll be interesting is what the health expert Fauci's thing about canceling it. Let's be realistic. It won't happen. So the next step is you're a public health official. How do you advise people? to lessen their risk. And, and, you know, maybe it's Laura's thing. Everybody go get tested right before you, you or get together. Or we just do like Canada and, and move our Thanksgiving to a warmer time of year <laughs> and everybody can eat outside, right? No, we're, I'm just kidding. We're kind but of no. beyond that though right now. Yeah. So I don't know that you could do it. No, no. I think this is a question that everybody is trying to answer right now. And it's why heat lamps are selling so, so high because, you know, outside is safer. And even though we haven't had the severely cold weather yet, people aren't hanging out outside as much. So I think that's why you're seeing it. But, you know, we don't have great contact tracing. We don't know exactly where all the spread is coming from. And, and yeah. frankly, test. I mean, testing is still out of reach for some people. You know, it's it's still not it's not as super reliable as you think it is. It's not as accessible as, as it should be. It's it's all of this stuff that, you know, we should have probably taken care of months ago. And here we are still struggling with it. The contact tracing remains the key. We've we've been talking to the state, man, it's been months now, because they've collected the case studies on thousands and thousands of people but they have it in a in a data form that's not searchable. And we keep talking to the state about even working with the state to make it searchable because without, without being able to analyze that data, you don't know how it's really spreading. You get anecdotally that it's funerals, but you don't know what percentage of cases are at funerals or, or what have you. I know that the state is, is trying to figure a way forward on that, but man, it would have been handy to have that all along. It's this week in the CLE. Did Louis Proenza, who redeveloped the University of Akron campus with very heavy borrowing when he was president, borrowing that has put them in a very serious fiscal challenge today, did he cut himself a sweetheart deal to buy out his teaching contract there? Laura Johnston, the president's, the cost of the president's at the University of Akron continues to boggle my mind. This financially challenged institution, these presidents that took the job you know, with, with some altruism to make it great institutions and then soak in the places for enormous amounts of money. This buyout rubs you the wrong way, given the challenges they have. What What are the details? Yeah. So Parenzo was president of the University of Akron from 1999 to 2014. So he did a lot of borrowing, but he also really expanded the campus and made it 
less of a commuter school and more of a community. I believe under him, they built the the new football stadium and everything. But he had been making a six-figure teaching salary since 2014 as part of the contract. It said that you could stay on after you left as president and make a six-figure salary. So his contract was set to expire in 2027. It was worth about $2.5 million, but two Akron U foundations are buying him out for about $850,000. So he will retire effective January 1st of next year. He'll get $500,000 from the University of Akron Foundation and $350,000 from the University of Akron Research Foundation. Think, think about that, though. He, <laughs> he, he, he was under contract for $2.5 million for the next seven years. He doesn't do any work in the next seven years and he gets a third of that. I and mean, it just seems like it just if for especially for a school, I get it. It's not coming out of the school's general fund, but those foundations pay for stuff at the school. So depleting their funds hurts the school as well. I, I'm just I'm been surprised at how much the presidents soak the place for cash. Yeah. And this isn't just him, right? Like Scott Scarborough he was the next president from 2014 to 2016, teaches accounting. Um, he was on a list of faculty to be laid off, but ended up not being laid off because, I mean, just like every other college, the University of Akron is facing a giant budget crisis because of the coronavirus. So they were going to eliminate 70 union faculty positions. And then I'm going to blank on the name of the next president who's no longer, like, <laughs> like they went through a string of presidents pretty quickly and um, it, it hasn't been good for their bottom line. Well, you know, and when the presidents are president, part of their job is to go out and get people to donate. So there, you can argue that paying them a little bit more pays off if they're effective because they're, they raise money, they make it rain. But in the roles they have now, that's not their job. They're just getting paid inordinate sums to teach a handful of classes. And now he gets bought out for big money. So Right. He was making $391,000 a year teaching in the honors program. I mean, I think most professors would love to make that kind of money. I mean, he's yeah. getting $850,000 to do nothing. <laughs> and this is Chris Warnowski. I, I assume he's not a struggling adjunct like most of my friends. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, he I, I doesn't just... have a, a second part-time job to make ends meet, you know, oh, why, while paying inordinate student loans that are caused by inordinate right, the fact that you joined, administrative you salaries at universities. Yeah. yeah, okay, I get it. I mean, you talk about the haves and the have-nots. Here's a guy who was paid very well during his time paid well after his time and now he's being paid well to do nothing but it is so, but that is i mean that is the second kind of reason we don't talk about when we talk about enormous student debt which is just how how bloated a lot of these universities budgets are and in in certain places now i'm not saying that the you know i think there's a lot of administrative fat at a lot of colleges that could be cut in order to help you know, pay teachers and, and bring tuition back down. But nobody likes to talk about that. No, but you're talking students are, are paying off debt for decades to pay salaries for things like this guy. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why does a Case Western Reserve University student say he is owed reimbursement for his tuition because of the pandemic? Chris Wernaski, you knew these kinds of lawsuits would be coming, <laughs> and there's a lot of them across the country. Finally, we have one here. Who Who is the student and what's his argument? So the student, uh, Daniel Lozada, had filed a lawsuit in court here, in federal court here yesterday and or late Tuesday, I should say, that says that the school charged him more than 26 grand in tuition and fees for the spring semester. But the suit says that the virtual learning experience lacked 
the educational benefits of in-person learning. And because of that, uh, he and his lawyers believe that the, the university breached its contract with students and obtained what they call unjust enrichment. So he's seeking class action status for this lawsuit, which means other students at Case Western could could actually join it. And uh, about 5,000 students actually attend that university. So I doubt they'll get all 5,000 students to do to join it. But but a judge would have to approve it as a class action suit before it becomes that. So that'll probably be the next step in this. But in Case Western obviously didn't have any comment on the pending litigation, but the lawsuit is among about 100 that have been filed by students uh, against their colleges around the country. And um, and the, and the, uh, the attorneys that are representing this young man uh, are involved in about 60 of those cases. So it is, I mean, it is a challenge, you know, I mean, these is, is John Coniglia pointed out in his story, if schools close classrooms amid the virus, they would face complaints about virtual learning and litigations. But if they keep their, if they had kept their doors open, people would have gotten sick. So, you know, it's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situations. Well, but it seems like it's a no-brainer. He paid for a service. He didn't get the service. It's, I mean, the university, through no faults of its own, couldn't provide the service, but they didn't provide the service. I mean, if I, if I go to the garage to get him to pay to do my oil change and the guy gets sick and can't do it, I don't pay for the oil change. He, this guy paid for the education quality for which Case Western Reserve University is known. He didn't get it. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like it's pretty much automatic. He'd get his money back for that. It's, uh, it, it, but it's, this is going to be bad for a lot of universities. And it's not like uh, higher education funding is, is great right now. You know, it's so, you know, this can be the end for, you know, I mean, I have a college in my hometown that's, that's really struggling financially and it might, and it might close it. So, you know, it, it, it's, you know, what this, what this could end up doing in the long run is, making edu- higher education less less accessible to a lot of people and and sort of narrows down the ability for people to actually uh, go out and seek a higher education. Or, Chris, it harkens back to a previous discussion we had at University of Akron. The colleges can reduce <laughs> their bloat and reduce their costs and make it more more valuable. I, I, I get what you're saying about this could hurt a lot of colleges, but but it's not Mr. Lozada's job to subsidize Case Western Reserve. Oh, no, no, I don't get me wrong. I mean, there's they, look, the universities have these massive untapped, you know, endowments and and other things that they don't like to 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 talk about in polite discussion. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, there, there, it's a rec. I mean, there is a reckoning that's going to come in one way or the other with this, but, you know, I just, I worry about the, the smaller schools that are going to be affected by this, that, that may be put out of business for good. And, and I, look, I get his point, you know, you, you pay for something, you should get what you pay for. But, it, it, you know, in this instance, I think in the long run, I just, I, I think it bodes poorly for higher education. Look, there's a growing argument in a number of quarters that people should, out of the goodness of their heart, subsidize things that have been hurt by the coronavirus. There's a coming argument about should the downtown employers bring their employees back downtown 
because Cleveland is going to be crippled when it loses all of that income tax money. But that's not the employer's job. It's not the employee's job to subsidize Cleveland. And there's a lot of resentment of Cleveland's income tax because it's borne largely by people who don't live there. They don't have any representation in government. It's the same kind of thing. It's, it's yes, the coronavirus has crippled downtown Cleveland. The coronavirus has crippled colleges and universities. But that doesn't mean the little guy, like Mr. Lozada, or the people who work downtown owe it to these these institutions to bail them out. It means that these institutions should have had some planning in place to protect themselves from from uh, downturns. Anyway, I uh, these clearly things we'll be talking about in the future. Uh, I just don't quite see how he could lose this, <laughs> this lawsuit. It's this week in the CLE. Kamala Harris is coming to Cleveland tomorrow. Why is that significant, Chris Bernowski? Well, yeah, she is going to be in the, in Cleveland. We don't really know where right now, but uh, but yeah, she had, the vice presidential campaign is is making its way through the city. And uh, as you know, Vice President Mike Pence was down in Columbus on Columbus Day, and suddenly we are a campaign stop uh, because our polls are starting to show us as being a competitive state, which is something that we really weren't talking about at the early part of this year. You know, we were dead set on being red all year. And then, and then, you know, the virus hit and, and things unraveled. And now we're suddenly a competitive place for, for this campaign and for this election. Yeah. It's what's interesting. We, we always have been a late stop in the campaigns, especially by the Democrats, Uh, you know, going back over every four years, going back 20 years, we're always in play in those last weekends. What, what I'm always surprised at is the predictions as the presidential year dawns, that we're not going to be a bellwether. In presidential elections, we are a bellwether. We may not be when it comes to the state house, but we long have been for presidential. So um, I'm not surprised to, to, to see it. I guess the, um, the closeness of the race just has, has the Democrats salivating at a time when they weren't because Biden's been here, she's coming. And I, I'm betting this isn't the last we see of them. No, and in and honestly, this is something that, you know, if you follow politics closely, that Sherrod Brown has long been saying, like, look, you could make a play in Ohio and it would probably work. So, you know, we're we're gonna see if he's right here in a few weeks. So but you know, we've early voting is up here. You know, I mean we've had a significant amount of people, more people vote in this presidential election early uh than we did in twenty sixteen when there was uh, not a lot of enthusiasm about voting, but, you know, we're here and across the country, you're starting to see a pretty significant amount of people coming out and voting already. So, you know, this is, as our polls say, people are pretty enthusiastic about voting this year. And, and what that says about the potential outcome, I, I don't know, but I guess we'll see. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is one of Cleveland's best-known restaurants, Sokolowski's University in really gone for good. Laura Johnston, this was kind of an earth shaker for the restaurant scene in Cleveland. It's one of the places that people talk about often to visitors coming into town. So kind of big news here. Yeah, we don't, we're not going to say a hundred percent for sure that they are gone, but it looks like they're, if they can get a good deal, then that they will be closed for good. The building is up for sale for $2.7 million. It's as four tenths of an acre. It's right on the Cuyahoga River Bluff overlooking downtown. 
And it's iconic for Cleveland. The restaurant's been there for, since 1923. It's been run by three generations of the Sokolowski family. Um, so they're hoping to sell. Now, they, they have expressed that if they don't find the right buyer or the right deal, they may opt to reopen Sokolowski's down the line. But actually, the restaurant's been closed since March 30th through all this coronavirus pandemic. So you have not been able to go get your uh, cabbage rolls or bratwurst since then. I wonder when this is all over, if you'd be able to use the tax rolls to get a quantity of small businesses that, that closed down permanently because of the coronavirus. It's devastated a lot of restaurants and other small businesses. We, we talk about the big names like this one. This is a big name. But but my bet is there's going to be quite a few that have dropped out, that the number of businesses paying taxes to the city of Cleveland or the state is going to drop by a, by a significant percentage. Yeah, I, I've actually only been to Sokolowski's once. I don't know how many times you guys have gone, uh, but I think a lot of people see it as a, a Cleveland tradition. Oh, and, and, and this is Chris Warnowski. I mean, it's not just a tradition. If you go back, like when this story broke, I went back and looked at the episode of Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations when he came to Cleveland. And it was what was fat. What's fascinating about it is if, if Sokolowski's does close, it and Hot Sauce Williams were the two restaurants that Anthony visited and they highlighted and both of them will have been shut down. And, you know, Sokolowski's is, is iconic. You know, I mean, Bourdain said it was one of the best meals he thinks he's ever eaten. And, and it is, I mean, it's, it's something that was sort of deeply ingrained in the, the history of it. I mean, you go back and you look at him, you know, the, the owner was, you know, talking about how, you know, guys used to come up from the steel plant, walk up the hill from the steel plants and buy food. And, and, you know, that's sort of how they became so popular. And, and it, and it's just something very, very rooted in, you know, a part of Cleveland that, you know, is kind of dying off as, as, as these small, businesses that we we sort of come to love and cherish are are really really hurting right now so if you can if they're open and if they're they're serving food go out and support them right now because they need it this virus is like the asteroid hitting the earth it's <laughs> white. i mean it's a it's an extinction event for so many things that have been around for a long time you're listening to this week in the cle the Cleveland Innovation Project, more than two years in the making, was unveiled at the Greater Cleveland Partnership Annual Meeting Wednesday. Laura Johnston, what is it? Drum roll, please. <laughs> uh, no? No? Okay. All right. So this has been a lot of work among five partner organizations and a steering committee searching for the region's, quote, next big bet on technology. So there's been a lot of fanfare leading up to it. Of course, the coronavirus pandemic changed things. But the vision unveiled Wednesday focuses on investing in technology and talent in three sectors, smart manufacturing, health innovation, and water technologies to reach economic and inclusion goals by 2030. So they, they're talking about four key initiatives that includes boosting digital and STEM talent in the region, achieve, achieving digital equity that includes like broadband, broadband access all through the city because as we know, that's a big problem. They also want to develop a pipeline of private capital to start and scale businesses and develop innovation zones like the Health Tech Corridor and Opportunity Corridor. So I'm I'm working pretty hard not to be skeptical of this because, <laughs> no, no, I, I they, they, look, there's a lot of history here. They started this two and a half years ago. It was done in good faith. It was based on a lot of research. 
Um, they've recently brought in Beiju Shaw to be the, the CEO of it. And, you know, he's one of the brightest lights in Cleveland. But the problem is that in the middle of this, the earth shook and, and COVID hit. And, and most of the research had been done by then. But, but the other problem is that while they completely believe and understand that equity that that making sure everybody participates in wealth building in Cleveland is a must or will all fail. They don't know how. And and that's the challenge. I mean, so many people, so many groups got together these last two years to say, okay, th- this is no longer a nice theory, a, a do-gooder thing. If we do not bring wealth building opportunities to everybody, including people in multi-generational poverty, we're not going to make it, but nobody has the idea. And no city has done it. I mean, it's not like we're last. Nobody has figured out how to do that. And I think it's because it's very expensive. So, they, you know, we they, they made a presentation to the editorial board and some of our reporters earlier in the week under embargo. And we asked those questions. And the answer was, look, we're just starting. We, we're not sure how we're going to do that. But we're going to be measuring it and reporting back regularly and we're going to work it at hard. And again, they've brought in fairly recently, I believe, Beiju Shah to, to, to run it. And, and that's a guy who gets stuff done. So I hope it works. And, and I believe they did it for the right reasons. It's just a monumental challenge. I'm also a little taken aback that they really haven't involved the city administration. You know, Frank Jackson's going to be mayor for another 14 months unless he runs again. And he controls a lot of the stuff that's key here. And it does not sound like he was part of that discussion. Well, we all know Frank Jackson. He's got a bit of a thin skin. And when he's not involved, he's fairly negative. So, I, you know, that, that seems like it's a bit of a, a flaw. Right. This sounds like a great idea, but it's going to be really hard. It's going to require all of this private investment. And while they don't really have a plan, GCP President Joe Roman says he's confident they're going to step up. Well, he did. He did. I should say he said something that I had not heard before. They are putting together a 50 million fund. The Greater Cleveland Partnership has money and they can raise money. I mean, they're 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 significant. 50 million dollar fund that is specifically for investment in the Cleveland neighborhoods where people are in poverty. That could make that could be a, a big move toward equity. I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. I think this is a, a serious good faith effort by some serious agencies that have resources who understand that we have to do this. If we don't do this, we're doomed. I just wish after two, two and a half years, there were some more substantive moves Plus, they were planning to make. I feel like we've heard this before, right? I mean, like, I feel like every couple of years, there's another big idea and innovation. And, you know, it's there's a lot of fanfare, and then you don't see a lot of results. So I hope that, you know, it sounds like a lot of planning went into this, a lot of people are working together. And the 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 focus on water technology, I mean, the Cleveland Water Alliance has been working for a couple of years and has a lot of success. And so at least they're, you know, these ideas seem to make sense. I mean, working around water, health innovation, and smart manufacturing, when you have places like Tri-C that have been working on this for a long time, at least they're not just like random, like, we're going to do this now. I mean, no, they, they make and, sense. And Ray Leach at Jumpstart pointed out, he said, look, one of the things you got to understand, we're talking every week. All of these groups are talking every week. That's been historically a challenge in Cleveland. Everybody has been isolated and working apart. And and he said that weekly connection 
is real. They're all devoting time to it in a way that, that they haven't before. You can't underestimate how much that means. He's right. For that, these groups to be 100% focused on these challenges and talking that often is it sounds to me like the most significant step forward. We just need to see the results, which Beiju promised they'll be coming back and laying out in front of us. So it's a big, it's a big deal. I mean, it's a very big deal, but I do have the Cleveland jaded thing. Like, is this another thing that goes on a shelf? So we'll hope not. We'll see this week in the CLE. Let's talk fish and basketball. What is the fall brawl and when is it? And after we lost our chance to see NCAA March Madness games last spring in Cleveland, do we have news of when it will come back around? Laura Johnson, we're running tight on time, so quickly. All right, real quick. So the Fall Brawl is a massive walleye derby that runs from Friday until November 29th. You got more than 9,000 anglers, plenty from out of state, signed up to try to catch the biggest fish in Ohio waters and win a boat. And actually, the runner-up gets a boat, too. So you'll see lots of boats on the lake this fall. And then, yes, we're going to get to see not one, but two parts of the NCAA uh, basketball tournament. 2024, we're getting women for the final four at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse in 2025, the first and second rounds of the men's basketball tournament. So get excited. There's a couple other things that are coming. Uh, wrestling's coming to the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse and then a couple others in, in outside uh, venues. And maybe by then we'll be able to get together in crowds. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first and second round means you get six games. It's a very cool weekend to uh, to be a part of. Cleveland's had it before and I've gone to it. It's a it's a blast. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. 